How's everybody doing? Yay. Let's all uh, praise the Lord with all that I am. seated. Good morning. A couple of quick announcements. I was getting out this morning and you all may have seen the same thing in your yard leaves. It's getting to be that, <coughs> that time and it was it reminded me of a story of a pastor that um, was in need of a mower and 
wanted a cheap one. Found one at a at a yard sale, and uh, asked, "Is this this thing work?" Oh yeah, it worked. Took it home. He could not get that thing started. He yanked on it, yanked on it, could not get it started. Took it back to the guy. Said, "Hey, I can't get this thing to to start." The guy says, "Well, you you just need to curse at it a few times." He says, "Well, I've been a pastor for thirty years now. I don't even know if I can remember how to curse." Guy says, "Keep pulling at it. It'll come back to you." I'm John Arweas. Just a few quick announcements. Um, no youth group tonight because of the holiday. Take a week off. So no no youth group uh, this evening. Men's breakfast next Saturday on the 12th at 8 a.m. Um, arrive at 7.30 if you're comfortable cooking. Kids Rock will reopen next Sunday on the 13th. Uh, that's uh, nursery through fifth grade. And we are actively seeking volunteers. So anybody that's interested in volunteering for that, please uh, contact the office or Kristen Anderson. Um, tutoring, there will be a second brainstorming meeting next Sunday after service in the Family Life Center. So uh, please come to hear about this new ministry. Um, marriage study by Paul Tripp called, titled, What Did You Expect? Day and time to be determined, so we're looking for couples interested in this class. It's going to be hosted by Don and Cindy Anderson, so please email the church if you're interested. And finally, the return event. Um, this is the um, day of repentance and prayer that is going to coincide with the national um, event on Saturday, September 26th, national event on the, on the, in the mall in D.C., um, from 11 to 1 o'clock. So... This is really growing and, and being refined by the week. Um, it's exciting to see it. We're still in need of volunteers, so anybody that can help with parking, with security, with cleanup, counseling, uh, ushering, uh, please reach out to either uh, myself or Roy or, uh, or Tracy. Yes. Any questions, just see one of us and we'll fill you in on the details. All right, let's stand and continue worship. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give your you are to worship come just as you are before your God come one day every tongue will confess you are God one day every knee will bow still the great 
treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give your heart. Come, just as you are to worship. Come, just as you are before your God. Come. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Willingly we choose to surrender our lives. Willingly our knees will bow. With all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, we gladly choose you now. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give your heart. as you are to worship, come, just as you are before your God, come, come, just as you are. This morning we are um, observing communion again and celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah, our salvation, our hope. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds the believers to check your heart as you come to the Lord in this time and uh, to be carefully observant of our own lives and, and the, the lives that we lead and the, the, the um, behavior and actions that exist in and around us. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning and take just a few minutes uh, to go before the Lord and um, to self-examine and, and ask the Spirit to do that for you as well. Father, would you guide our hearts, expose to us the things that may be unseen or that are um, habits and repeated patterns that we know of, Lord, that we need to confess this morning. Father, it's an interesting thing how silence is at times so difficult for, for me anyway, and yet to quietly go before you and, and ask 
for you to reveal what's what is um, sin in in my life and what's blocking my relationship with you, Lord. It, um, I do not do that often enough. And I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that your mercy and your grace, your salvation, the good news of the gospel, Christ our Messiah, his obedience, death, burial, and resurrection was not dependent upon my action. It was based on your character and who you are. So I thank you for that, and I pray this morning as we lay our um, things, our issues, our our fleshly desires before you, and we are reminded uh, that they are placed on the cross as, as we are your children, uh, they, we are crucified with our Lord Jesus and raised again anew because of his victory over sin and, and the power of the Spirit that raised him from the dead victorious. As we take communion this morning, Lord, let it resonate in our hearts, that reality and that truth. We give you the praise and glory this morning in your name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we'll take together. Verse 25, he continues, In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you again for this time, and you know my heart. I am so easily distracted by these stupid little cups. And probably by so many other things in life, and it keeps, it, it, it is such an easy thing to be distracted from who you are and your sovereignty, your grace, your righteousness, your holiness, the truth of who you are, the power of the Spirit, the the ministries that we've been called to, the way in which you have created every one of us uniquely for your body's work, that you've drawn the people together here, not because of, of how good we are at getting along or, or how, how wonderful we are as individuals, but because of what your eternal purposes are in the kingdom, and that was fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. And because of that reality, regardless of the distractions in this life, regardless of our of our circumstances that we may find ourselves in, we can exalt your name and glorify you because you exist beyond human creation, beyond our reality. You created it. You ordain it. You hold it together with your word. And because of that, we can worship you this morning. So I thank you, Father, 
for the free gift of eternal life. I thank you for grace and forgiveness. I thank you for love. I thank you for that you are truth and you are holy. May our worship express those realities as we praise you this morning in music, as we worship you together in word and fellowship, as we exalt you in our lives this week. May you be glorified in the praise and worship of your church. Amen. Won't you join us for how deep the Father's love is? I cannot give an answer. 
I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom Thank you, Jesus, for paying that penalty on the cross and for dying for each and every one of us and um, standing the, the test of all eternity to be a humble servant as a sacrifice of atonement for us. And we praise you for that. We thank you for that. And um, we desire you um, every single day uh, to move us and to change us, Father. And um, for those of us who, who've, who've yet to place our trust into you as Lord and Savior, um, I pray that you would uh, turn our faces to the cross and to what true, authentic, um, pure and holy love looks like. Um, there's no greater love than for a person to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus laid down his life for his enemies, whom he calls friends. And um, I wrestle with that every single day, the reality of that. I pray that we would uh, meditate on that as well. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, you guys. Don't mind me, I'm just trying to get my technology to work this morning. You guys ever had that... Uh, moment in your childhood where your parents are trying to help keep you focused on something bigger than the immediate? Okay, so none of you were children? Um, okay. I, I was a young man, and um, as you guys know, I'm easily distracted by life, and uh, and I had this kite, and it was one of my favorite, that was, I, I, don't, I have no idea why it meant so much to me, but it was a big deal. And so I got this kite, and I'm out flying it with one of my Turns out to be a lifetime family friend. I it was too young and immature and selfish to even understand uh, the investment of this individual in my life. But I was we were flying my kite, and it ended up getting caught in this big tree. And as you can imagine, as a young man, I throw a complete fit because I think we should go up in the tree and get my kite, which is probably only, I don't know, 35 or 40 feet off the ground at this point in this huge fir tree. And Mark Johnson is actually the guy's name. He's still a friend of mine, flies helicopters, and, and I keep up with him on Facebook. But I, the, the reason I remember this moment is because the, the significance of it in my young life, and I was, I was very small at the time, and I went home without my kite. I lost my kite that day. And I'm, I'm at home, and, and, and you know, Mark and, and Dorothy Johnson are trying to console me and let me know that it's just a plastic thing, like a $3 kite that we can replace. It was horrible. And I get home, and my, my mom is not sympathetic to my plight. She's sharing with me the logic of Mark Johnson and Dorothy Johnson. And I'm like, you're not, you're, you're not here. You're not on my side on this. And years later, now as, as I look back, the, the thing that they kept reminding me and telling me that it was not safe to do was because there was power lines that were running right through the tree, great big, huge power lines. And it had overgrown like through the power lines. 
And, and Mark's going, Shane, for $3, I'm not going to risk my life for your kite. There's, just, there's a bigger picture to this. But as a young man, in that immediate moment, I was consumed by that one thing. Anybody else relate to that story at all now? You know, it's funny. As a parent, your paradigm shifts, doesn't it? When, when you have kids and you begin to understand uh, how important it is to help them see the big picture, to not be lost in the moment of an emotional or, or, or experience at that precise time in life. And now, having had four boys and um, mo- mostly surviving the process, um, I realized what my parents were doing. They, they were trying to get my eyes on the things that were more important than that immediate emotional momentary loss. And I love that Jesus does this with his disciples. He does this, I think, throughout Scripture. God does that for you and for me. Um, Because we are easily distracted by life, aren't we? The answer to that is yes. And we can be honest. Let's just be honest about it. We're easily distracted by life. How many of you are distracted by current political or social issues? How many of you are distracted by your current physical issues? That one didn't get a bigger amen. Are you kidding me? How many of you guys get up in the morning and are like, measure your life by how much you don't hurt? We all do, right? As we age, we get, there's just many things in this life that are quickly and easily distracting to us. And as parents, once you have kids, you start worrying about them. And their decisions, not only do you have to deal with your own dumb decisions, but you got to watch, and, and now you have anxiety and concerns about them. Life is easily distracting, and, and God is aware of that, and Jesus is aware of that as he's working with his 12 scholars. That's a joke. You guys got to stay with me here. We're talking about the disciples, right? They were the top of the, top of the class for him, and he's, he's walking them through all of these amazing truths that he's teaching. Even when we get to the communion table, he's discussing what's happening, and in the midst of that story, he actually exposes the one that's going to betray him, and he gets up and leaves. I mean, look at the, the, the intensity and the, the chaos that's happening even around that moment as Jesus is preparing to give his life. And I believe that as Jesus walks us through uh, his, his sharing with his disciples the end times, these stories, the, the, the realities of judgment and tribulation and things that are coming, he is doing this so that they'll be aware of what's happening. And in the midst of that, as the Holy Spirit leads, they will be able to keep their focus on the most important things. And we're going to look at that today. And as we're wrapping up, uh, Mark chapter 13 this morning, Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 31. The encouragement for me is that R.C. Sproul says this is one of the most difficult passages in the text, in, the, in Scripture, to, to actually interpret accurately. So uh, th- this is one of those challenging ones. So if you've come here looking for some kind of great advice or great deep nuggets of wisdom, just set that by the door. And um, what, what, what we're going to wrestle with today is what is it that God wants for us to hear out of this, recognizing that some of this is going to be very difficult to, to land on an, on an absolute interpretation. But I believe there's some core truth in here that we can leave with today. The text says this, Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know 
that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, we know the fig tree. I, I, I love the fact that he's using this illustration again. He's referencing this, this particular aspect of the fig tree that is fairly unique to the fig tree, that it has fruit, and in the middle of its se- as it's uh, progressing through its seasons, the leaves come after the fruit is already on the tree, and it's an evidence that the, that the harvest is near. When the leaves begin to come out, it means the fruit's going to start ripening, and they're ready to harvest. Not like most of the fruit trees that I know. We actually see this, uh, him use that passage. We just went through it. Turned out it was like two months ago. Um, But Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, he actually references this as he's coming into uh, Jerusalem and and curses the fig tree for having no fruit, although it had all the leaves. It looked like it should have been ready for harvest, but there was nothing there. In fact, it had the appearance of the, the, the being ready for harvest, even out of season. It looked like it should have had fruit, although it was out of season, and, and he actually references that in that text. So here Jesus is reminding his disciples, use this as a way, if you, you know how the fig tree works. When you see these things, you know that the harvest is near. Recognize this, because that's what I'm going to share with you uh, about with, uh, the, 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 everything I've told you up to this point, the suffering that you're going to face, the trials that you're going to face, this cosmic moment when the sun and the moon fails and the stars fall from the skies. You, you're, you're seeing all these things happen. I'm telling you about all of this stuff and recognize that when you see them, you know that he is near and he is at the very gate. The idea of being aware of the signs, we actually see Mark chapter 13. We're not going to look at it again today. We've, we've recently been there. But he actually cautions his believers to be on guard. The, the, the word actually means to watch carefully, to be vigilant, uh, be on the lookout or, or be careful. And I think so often in, in a world of great distraction with all kinds of things to keep our eyes somewhere other than on, on the things of the Lord and on, on His promises and the hope that is in the Word of God, we can be easily distracted and not paying attention, right? Right? I, I mean, that's, that's really what we see on the road. There are a few angry people, but most people are just distracted and they're not paying attention. They're just driving down the road doing their own thing. And I think so often we do that, even in the church. We're, we're just running our lives with our own stuff in mind, and, and we're busy, 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 busy. But we may not really be watching very carefully. Jesus is trying to get his disciples to be aware of the things that are going on around him. Isn't it amazing? You know what's happening right after this? Jesus is going to the cross. He's preparing his disciples for a very traumatic ending to his ministry. It was actually kind of a beginning, but from a human perspective, it had every evidence of the end. And so Jesus uses the fig tree to remind the disciples that this is going to happen. You're going to see things take place. And when you see these things, you know that the end is near and you know that he is, he is near and at the very gate. This is where things get, um, uh, uh, well, not, not quite yet. They don't get as challenging as what the next verse does. But who is the he that is near? Who is the he that he's talking about? When you know that he is near, 
at the very gate. Isn't it interesting that he's talking about his own return here? He hasn't left yet, but he's telling the disciples that when you see these things, he is near. He's at the very gate. This coming return of the Lord, this great and mighty day of the Lord is very near when these things begin to happen. Can you imagine the disciples probably a little confused? My, I mean, I would guess that they're a little confused by the way Jesus speaks of, of the stuff that he's sharing with, with them at this moment. And the language that he uses would obviously take them back to Old Testament truth. But I want to just take a moment and talk about the urgency of Christ's imminent return. This idea that it's about to happen, that's the terminology that's used, is that it's near, it's close, it's close at hand. It's coming. And we see James speak of that in James chapter 5. Look at James chapter 5 verse 7 with me. One of my favorite analogies in Scripture about the end times has to do with farming. I love this. James says in verse 7 of chapter 5, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You guys good with that? You guys good with being patient? I'm not. And then he uses a farming analogy. Look at, look at, the, look at this farm analogy. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and be, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your, heart, your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I love that he uses the farmer as the analogy of patience. Any of you guys got to farm in your life, even, even raising a vegetable garden? How patient are we really with that? We do all the preparation, right? In fact, um, growing up on a farm, I watched my dad work all season long in preparation for the, for, for the spring rains and, and to, get the, to get the ground ready and to get the plants in the ground. And then he'd work all the rest of the season preparing for harvest. It may have appeared patient in the sense that he couldn't do anything about when the harvest came. But to have a heart of patience that's truly restful and dependent on God, that is waiting on that harvest, I, I watched my dad in a lot of agony, a lot of stress over whether it was going to rain this day or rain that day. We stayed up a couple of nights all night long trying to get the hay in because the weatherman said it was going to rain tomorrow. Isn't it exciting when they're as accurate as they are? You stay up all night getting in the hay and then no rain the next day? There was great patience there. There was, there was incredible intensity, though. My, my dad could not do anything about when the harvest was ready, but he was preparing all the time. There was very little rest in farming. There were times where you could do something, and you did it. But the harvest was rarely in their control. In fact, I would say it was never 
in their control. The preparation was and being prepared, but not the harvest. Isn't it interesting, as a, as a side note, as James is challenging the believers to prepare for suffering, to prepare for the day of the Lord, he reminds them not to grumble against one another so that we may not be judged. He, I think he takes us back to that idea of how we treat one another before the Lord matters. Because he's going to hold us accountable for how we as the church behave towards one another. Revelation chapter 3 speaks of this coming of the Lord and, and this return of Christ and what it's going to look like. It, it was a bit of a challenge um, it, to my own heart as I, was re- as I read the, the one verse that talks about this. I felt like we needed to see the whole context of this particular passage. So we're going to read from verses 14 to 22 of Revelation chapter 3. To the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And sob to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my right, uh, sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's interesting that in this particular text of Jesus coming and knocking on the door, that, that he, he actually speaks of a church that is wealthy and comfortable, that is blind to their own wretchedness and their own condition. He encourages them to buy gold refined by fire. And when we think about being refined by fire and what the Spirit says about the refinement of fire, it's, it's about the idea of removing the things that are of man, the, the, the things that are dross, that are not acceptable of, as worship before the Lord. And it, it's never really a comfortable thing for us because it's typically going to take away the things that come from our heart that aren't really for God. And in that moment, he's standing before the church and it says that, that he's going to discipline those he loves and he's going to stand at the door and knock. This picture has Jesus standing on the outside of the church. I think the hardest part, sometimes when I read that text, is I think to myself, yeah, those churches, those those other believers. What I'm wrestling with in my own heart and, and what I want to be very careful of here is that I'm not, the rich, blind Christian. The religious person that has all the physical comforts of a very wealthy nation and yet completely wretched 
as far as my walk with the Lord. I believe of all the churches, the church of Laodicea has the most appropriate application to the modern church that we experience in the United States. And I'm not saying that they're all that way. I'm not saying that, that I, I'm not saying it. You got to do your own evaluations of your own heart and see where we're at. Because this isn't about a building, it's about the church, the body of Christ. And clearly from this text, we can see that there are churches that exist that do not have Christ in them. And they are blind and naked. Wretched and pitiable. And they need the Lord. The return of Christ is imminent. When he comes, what condition will he find us in? Who will he find? I believe that as we think about the return of Christ, that should be the posture of our heart. And we should wrestle with this reality. And um, the, the distraction is so interesting to me that in all of the commentaries, the real emphasis of this text is in the next verse. Uh, by the commentaries, this is what, they, what most of the commentaries that I read and the arguments that I looked at this week focus their energy on this next, on the very next verse, verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So much focus is in, and energy has been poured into this particular sentence in this text. And what's crazy, you guys, is that there are every, that every single view of this is available. Um, you can find somebody that, in the Christian world that holds to a particular interpretation of this verse, e- either from the people that are present at that moment, actually seeing all these things, and that that, that stuff happened at that very moment to those disciples who were standing there, all the way to the other side, where it's, it's just meant for the complete loose interpretation of whoever is there at that time, whenever it happens, and, and, and that very general interpretation of this passage. And there's everything in between. which is amazing, and probably rightfully so, right? Because that passage is difficult to explain. Can you imagine being the disciples right then? Okay, just think about it for a second. I know it's difficult, but imagine you're sitting there. He's telling you all this horrible stuff's going to happen, and then Christ's going to return, and this generation will not pass away. If I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, whew, that's good because, man, that was going to stink. Look at, look at everything he said in chapter 13 so far. That was going to be a horrible existence. Parents turning on, on, on their children, children turning on their parents, t- taken away and tortured, and the, the suffering that's going to happen for those who are following Christ. So there are many interpretations of this passage, and it's interesting. I went and sat with one of my uh, Greek uh, Bible guys who, who loves to read the Greek, and we were wrestling through the text. And, and he said, in general, if you look at the, the text back into 13, there's a lot of very open statements, which is why they have the very general interpretation that it's whoever is present when these things take place will see the end. And I, and I realize that doesn't give you a whole lot of, of like absolutes to hold on to, but let me give you a, just a, it's a quick snapshot. Read the next five verses after this. We're going to look at them next week, but you can read ahead. It's okay to do that. I'm I'm pretty sure that Jesus is being general enough here to help us not get distracted on the when. Could you imagine if he actually gave us a date? How many of you guys are like perfect people? You're planners. You're you're ahead of the curve. You like to get everything done ahead of time. 
You, you won't, you like to have all of your details in line, in order, done before you even start the program. How many are like that? Okay, there's a few of you. How many of you are a little bit more, I don't know, spiritual, and you're more of a procrastinator? Like, you like to let the Spirit lead you to a conclusion and a, and a resolution, right? How many of us are in that department? And then there's a whole bunch of you in between. Imagine if he gave us a date and he said, this is when I'm going to be back. Some of us would be out partying. Others of us would be out planning. Somebody would be in the middle trying to make us all get along. But most of us would not be dependent on God for every moment in every day. Because we'd know when it was going to happen. And we'd either have put in all of the work that we needed to get it done, or we would have been resting on the fact that he said he's going to be okay, and we would have just tried to skate in by the skin of our teeth. By him leaving this open-ended, by him not explaining this to the, to, to the nth degree, it actually creates for us a deep, deep dependence and a real urgency to have our eyes on Christ, to have our hearts in the Word and in prayer, and to be dependent on Him. Isn't it interesting as he, he gives this very general decree and then, he, and then he goes right back to cosmic, huge things. The heavens and earth will pass away. You see that in verse 31? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Who can say that? Who can say that? Only God, Right? I mean, God's the only one that created all of this. He's the only one that can truly say, have the authority to say, everything that you know in creation, everything you see that exists, that you believe is your whole world, all of that will be gone. But my words will not pass away. They will not be extinguished. Only God can say such a thing. Look in Psalm uh, chapter, chapter uh, 102. I was stabbering there for a second because I looked at my notes and I'm like, what? Only my third passage, we're almost done. Don't worry, I'll catch up right now. Psalm 102, verses 24 through 28. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established forever. The psalmist understood the character and nature of God. Describes him actually changing the heavens, discarding them as a robe. Doesn't that, like, you guys think about that for a second. He's going to discard the heavens, the things that, that we are, that's a mystery to us, that we spend as humans, we're still searching to try and find an answer to many of the mysteries that are in, this, in, the, in the heavenlies, in the universe. Making bigger and bigger micro, uh, telescopes to see farther and farther out, making smaller and smaller microscopes to see farther in. It's a mysterious and amazing thing. And, and the psalmist talks of God in such a way that he discards him like a robe. 
Isaiah 51, verse 6 says this. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. When Jesus uses language like this, I believe that he's taking his disciples. He's actually using the specific language that they would know from the Psalms. They would know from the Old Testament to tie them into the prophecy that he's giving them at this time, the, the, the great and mighty day of the Lord, his great return. Second Peter speaks to this as well. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. He says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. When Jesus mentions that heaven and earth will pass away. He's speaking of this great and awesome day of the Lord, which uh, there are other texts. We won't get into them today. But this is, uh, it's amazing how much of Scripture actually speaks to this particular event and, and this return of God to set right the things on the earth, to bring uh, a judgment on the evil and the destruction that has been ha- wreaking havoc on the earth. very, very early in creation, at Adam's first sin. And we've been suffering the consequences ever since. And Jesus ends that, what would, to me, feels like a pretty horrible proclamation of that heaven and earth will pass away, with, I believe, a great encouragement, a great... um, proclamation of sovereignty and that the word of God, my word, he says it, the the last part of verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Psalm 119 speaks of this word of God, this idea of not passing away. And I think it's interesting. I was doing a little research in Psalm 119, and um, the psalm is, it, this is it's a pretty incredible psalm. I don't know how many of you have, have actually read through it and looked at it, um, but the psalm is an acrostic poem of 22 stanzas, and it follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And it actually has a very strict pattern that, that, put, that they're put into, and one of the commentaries that I was reading about, he said, this is one of the great psalms of, of the Hebrew faith. And if you were to sing this, it would take you through a journey of the sovereignty of God and, and his amazing attributes and the value of worshiping him. And it was something that they would use to, to very, very strictly remind them of who God was in their religious walk with the Lord. A great, great opportunity um, even today for us to go through and read and be reminded of the character and the nature of God. Well, in this psalm, we actually see this, the, the, this particular character 
referenced in Psalm 119, starting in verse 89. The psalmist says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimony. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, I went way past myself. Sorry. Isn't that good? I just keep reading. Probably be better anyway. The word of the Lord is established forever, fixed firmly in the heavens. It's his word. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. Right before this, you actually see uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the kingdom that cannot be shaken, this reality of, of a new mediator, the blood of Christ, which was better than that of Abel, the, the sacrifice of Christ and, and how it establishes us. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of who he is and that he offered it to us. says this in verse 25 of Hebrews 12, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Referencing the fact that those who are the children of God will not be shaken because we are not of the earthly kingdom, the things that will be shaken, and we are established in Him. What a great hope that is. What a great hope that is today. And finally, in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. Challenge to the church. I think that would be a challenge for us today. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you, in whole, called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter's challenging the church to to live out what we say we believe. To live it out in hope, recognizing that, that who, who it is that we're trusting in, who it is that's established us. At least in my life, I, I don't remember a time where my ability to be distracted, my ability to, to worry about things that are happening has ever been more greatly challenged. The ease of being getting my eyes off of the Lord and, and, and onto the things of, of current events. Super easy for me to be distracted. And here Jesus is reminding his disciples before he even goes to the cross that they're going to experience some great persecution and there's going to be great tribulation even for them. And, and, and obviously there's, there's still the, the tribulation that's coming that we see in Revelation. And there's great, great pain that's coming. There's great anxiety for the believers, for his disciples. And Jesus is looking at them and he says to them, even if heaven or when heaven and earth pass away, my words will not pass away. Do you know how long the enemy has been trying to destroy this book? From the very beginning of creation, the very first temptation that he offered man was, did the Lord really say? Did God really say that? And he's been sowing the seed of disbelief and deception, and it's been active from all creation. And yet God's word still exists. I had somebody ask me one time, what's the right translation? Yeah, how, how are you going to define that? They, they wanted to give, I think it was King James at the time, it was the particular season of my life where it was supposed to be King James. I know somebody that came to know the Lord on a message, and they, they were a better disciple than any of the, not any, Better disciple than many of the people I would watch and read King James. The guy read the message and he went out and started telling people about Jesus. Imagine that. We were sitting in a room fighting over what translation to use. Positive. God was thrilled with that. What are we doing as the church today? Brothers and sisters, I get it. There are things about this moment in our history that are terrifying. I get it. But eternally speaking, we have nothing to fear. Nothing. Not socially, not politically, not medically, financially, ergonomically, ecumenically. I have no idea. I'm making up words right now. What do we have to fear if this is the God of the universe who even when heaven and earth passes away, His Word still stands and we have it in our possession to read, to study? What do we have to fear? 
My greatest fear is that we're the complacent, blind church that holds the Word of God and says, I'll get to that some other time. I'll get to it when I'm not busy. I really don't like that passage. That guy's a jerk. I don't want to love him. I don't want to forgive people that haven't asked for forgiveness. I don't want to be the servant. That stinks. Who wants to serve other people? I don't want to die. Not to my selfish desires. Not to my preferences. What are we doing today in this opportunity when the world is lost? It's mind. And we're seeing it exposed. We're, we're seeing it paraded on the television as somehow being a, a good thing. What are we as the church doing? Brothers and sisters, I, I want to encourage you, as I've been encouraged this week, that yes, the world is going to pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But the word of God, his children are secure in him because we are not of a kingdom that can be shaken. We are of a heavenly kingdom that is secured because of the king. We have great hope and there's great joy to be had in this moment of being children of God. He's not called us to huddle up in a room somewhere and tremble. That is not our call. We are to be lights. We are to be gospel-centered disciples who are living for Christ in everything that we do. That means no matter what I do, whether the, 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 the one 30-minute or 40-minute if, if I get really excited about things, this moment in my life is not the main thing that I do all week. The most important thing I do is how I love my neighbors, how I live for Christ every day at my house, every day at the grocery store. Let's just be honest, every day on the road. It's how I live my life for Jesus there. It's how I trust Him when I'm watching things on Facebook or on the news or I'm interacting with my other brothers and sisters who, who are very concerned about specific areas in their own life. I want to be able to say, I know the God his word lasts forever. No matter what happens in your life, we can trust him. Because when all else fails, he will not. And that's our hope. That's our hope. So as we put our eyes on Christ, love one another, and be a light for the gospel in our community. That's what we get to do. That's what we get to do. How cool is that? I'm not sure if you guys are convinced. Isn't that cool? God took most sports away this year. Isn't that cool? Do you know that I have been very distracted by sports most of my life? I know there's kids that, that, that there's great athletic programs that are good for kids. But we have created a world of idolatry. And I'm not saying around sports. 
I'm saying around everything that we do in our life, from from making money to to having prestige to to whatever comfort issues you guys have, whatever comfort issues I have. You ever gotten upset when you get up in the morning and you come into the office and you realize that the Keurig machine's empty and you have to walk to the kitchen? Then you understand my plight. That, that's the idolatry of my heart, though, you guys. That's how simple and easy it is for us to lose sight of what God's doing. I am not saying that sports are bad. I'm not saying that loving cars or, or whatever it is that we love to do, hunting, whatever it is that you love to do, I'm not saying those things are bad. But I know in my life, there are many times where I've spent more time doing those things or focused on those things than I've spent focused on understanding and knowing my Father. And that should be a wake-up call for us as a church. The only thing that, that survives all of the, the disaster of our earth, of the world, heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will not pass away. Pursue the Lord in everything you do. If it's sports, if it's cars, if it's politics, if it's work, if it's people, if it's servant, whatever it is, and everything you do, pursue the Lord. Know the Father. And we'll have peace. Not like the world gives. Not like the world gives. But like Jesus does. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this body. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you, God, that we uh, all have different issues and all have different passions and desires. God, I pray that you would use each member of this church, each body member of your church globally, that you would call us out, that you would open our eyes to hear and see what it is that you're doing, that we would take action in our piece of the body, in our part. Uh, A friend of mine was encouraging me this last week that sometimes we think of ourselves as a mouth or a foot or a toe maybe or an armpit, but there's a chance that I might just be something way smaller. I might just be something unseeable, some kind of microbiology in the scope of, of your body, something that's unseen, uns- it can't, can't be seen by the human eye. And yet, God, in your design, that is ultimately valuable for your purposes in the kingdom when we function as you've called us to function. Father, open our eyes and our ears that we would hear from you, that we would understand what you're calling us to be, and that we would obey. That we would love one another, that we would have our hope and our eyes on you when this world goes crazy. That the church would be the one place of hope and light when there is no hope or light anywhere else. God, I pray that you would take the worship that is offered here and you would use it for your glory. The worship that is offered during the week and use it for your purposes and your glory. We thank you and praise you for all you're doing. Amen. Won't you join us for our final song, Broken Vessels, Amazing Grace?
But now 
amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, oh I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, I can see you now. coming back from the dead for us, Father. When you went to the cross, you died for our sins and crushed the power of death over every single person. And you didn't stop there. You, you couldn't allow uh, death to have a hold on us. And so you rose by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit, um, defeating death once and for all. And so our hope is sure. Our hope is 110% in everything. Like Shane was saying, there's, there's nothing that has a hold on his body, on the church, because we are 100% within you, and you are 100% within us, and nothing will ever, ever pull us from your grasp, nothing. And uh, we love you for that, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.